Hello, and welcome back to Over My Dead Pod. I am Holly Spear. This is Kate Carter. And Kylie Colwell. And today is my episode, so we will just jump right into it. So it's February 21st, 1977 at 9 p.m. in Chicago. Firefighters are responding to a call of an ongoing fire in an apartment's upper floor. Firefighters would locate the apartment on fire and bust open the door to extinguish the flames. What the firefighters found was a mattress on fire in the middle of the floor in the living room. Luckily, the firefighters called out and found that no one was in the apartment. However, within just a few minutes, they would discover that under the charred mattress was the body of a woman. This woman was Teresita Bossa. Teresita had been stabbed in the chest, and it was assumed that she had been raped. It became apparent that the fire had been started in an attempt to destroy evidence of the murder. The attempt to destroy evidence had partly worked because the police had no physical evidence and no leads. Fire damage had destroyed any fingerprints that may have potentially been left at the crime scene in Teresita's home. As far as motive, the police also hit a brick wall. Other than the possibility that Teresita might have been raped, nothing was missing from the apartment, so they did not suspect it was a robbery. Teresita's friends and co-workers described her as a well-liked and dedicated professional who used all her free time to work even more. Teresita had no enemies, and an autopsy would later reveal that there was no evidence of rape. Police were at a dead end. That was until one random day, six months after the crime. Teresita had moved from the Philippines to the United States in 1960, and she was a respiratory therapist at a hospital in Chicago. The only thing resembling evidence was a note of paper that was still intact from the fire that Teresita had jotted down something. The note said, get three tickets from AS. So all these time, all this time through the six months, police don't know who AS is. And this is really the only thing that they have because we have no fingerprints, no DNA evidence. She was not raped. There was nothing that they knew stolen from the apartment. It's really the only thing that they have. Police believed AS could possibly be the initials of someone that Teresita planned to meet up with later that day, get purchase tickets from for something, but we don't know. Detectives of the Chicago Police Department got a call from the husband of a woman that worked at the hospital with Teresita. The husband was also a doctor and a Filipino like Teresita. The couple requested that they stay anonymous when they called the police, but explained that they had a story that would flip the investigation on its head. The couple began asking the detectives if he had any experience with the paranormal. So like a good detective, the detective told the couple that he didn't, but he would listen to what they had to say. At this point in the investigation, the detectives are pretty much ready to listen to any lead that they have. It's been six months. They have basically nothing other than this note. We see this a lot with like unsolved and open investigation cases. You get these like random people that pop out of the woodwork that claim that they read cards or like see the dead or they've cracked the case. We see instances actually where like terrible people like reach out to victims' families and lead them down like bogus paths of nowhere. But the police are going to listen because it's really the only hope that they have at this point. The detectives on the case listen to the couple. If anything, maybe the couple actually knows something and doesn't want to reveal their source or it could lead to someone who does know what happened. So the detectives hone in on the anonymous couple. The detective that listened to the couple would say that after all his years of working in the department, that he was able to tell truth from lies. And he could tell that this couple actually did believe that they were telling the the detective the truth. The husband said that he knew what he was going to tell the officer was going to sound crazy, but that he had urged his wife to finally tell the police what had been going on since the death of Teresita. The woman 
his wife, so he was a doctor and the woman, his wife is a respiratory nurse in the hospital. They all work in the same hospital, hospital as Teresita. The woman goes on to say, it all began one night after the death of Teresita. The woman was working a long shift in the hospital and had gone into the employee's lounge and laid on the couch to rest. It was a night shift and she was on her break. She fell asleep in a matter of seconds after closing her eyes. She would say that she felt like there was a presence in the lounge with her. The woman, not knowing if she was dreaming or not, said that she saw the ghost of Teresita Bossa. Teresita would stand there staring at her. The woman said she was paralyzed with fear and all she could do was pray until the experience was over and Teresita disappeared. This woman that's a nurse, she knows this other nurse. It's not clear if they were like very close or just worked around each other, but she does know who she is. She knows that she's been murdered at this point. Two weeks later, the experience happened again. The woman was home. The woman was not feeling well that night and had decided to go to bed early. Her husband would come into the room to check on her. Her husband came in and asked the wife if she was all right, but her voice seemed different. The husband was worried about his wife being sick, so he tried to talk, get her to like talk more. And he's like, can you tell me how you're feeling? Can you tell me what's going on? And unexpectedly, the wife said that her name was Teresita Bossa. The woman's husband was very confused about his wife saying this random name because I don't think that he knew who she was. The wife would say, go tell the police and tell them his name is Alan Shulry. Chills must be going down the detective's spine at this point because the detectives are the only ones that know about the letter in Teresita's apartment that says A.S., getting the tickets from an AS. And they've been trying to figure out this entire time who that could have been. So minutes later, the wife woke up from her sleep and her husband asked if she remembered at all what she had been saying while she was asleep. She said she had no idea what she was talking about. So the husband chalked it up to his wife being ill and forgot about the whole ordeal. The couple then goes on to tell the police of a third instance where the wife was again sleeping and she began asking her husband in her sleep, why did you not go to the police? The wife then goes on to say, he killed me, he took my jewelry, and he gave it to his girlfriend. So these two people are like, they're doctors. They, I don't know, like if they, how they feel about paranormal things. I mean, I know how I feel it, but what are y'all's thoughts at this point? The, the wife was like possessed. Yeah, that's what they're claiming. So, I mean, I'll be honest, like I was just, I mean, I don't really know how I feel about that kind of stuff, but I mean, my thoughts were like, they know something and they don't want to like tell how they know it, you know? Yeah. And the fact that they knew what AS stood for and the police didn't even know, like the police knew the initials, but they didn't know the name. Or maybe she's just possessed. Or maybe she is. Maybe. I mean, they sound like, like good people by their jobs, but you never know. So this being the only lead and thinking there could be something underneath this whole dream, the police continue on with this investigation through this lead. It came from unconventional means, but the police department decided it was worth running a background check on Alan Shulry. From this, we find out that not only does Alan work at the hospital with Teresita, but he also lives near Teresita, only a few miles from her home. So the police make a trip to the hospital that Teresita and Alan worked at. The other staff that knew Teresita told the detectives that they did remember Teresita mentioning Alan and said that he was coming to her apartment to repair the TV set. So this puts Alan at the scene of the murder approximately the same time. This unlikely tip turns out to be the best tip that police had. Police bring Alan in and ask him when the last time he was at Teresita's apartment was. Right from the beginning, Alan admits that he had gone to Teresita's apartment to fix her TV, just like Teresita's friend had said but that Alan did not have the correct tools to fix her TV, so Alan planned to return later. 
Alan returned to his apartment, which he shared with his girlfriend. So if you remember the wife that was dreaming of Teresita had told the detectives in her dream that Teresita told her that Alan had stolen her jewelry. Police decide to contact Alan's girlfriend. So Alan's story at this point is that he did go to fix her TV, didn't have the right tools, and then left. Police contact Alan's girlfriend. They ask if Alan had recently given her any jewelry. And the girlfriend says, yes, actually he had. The girlfriend complies and allows Teresita's family to look at the new gift from Alan and see if they recognized it to be Teresita's. The police line up the jewelry among other similar pieces and immediately the family recognizes a large unique necklace of Teresita's. The police then ask if they see anything else. They pick out a few smaller pieces of jewelry and then the family says that ring is Teresita's. The ring that's on Alan Shalry's girlfriend's finger like at that moment she was wearing it the last time that Teresita's family had seen her she was wearing that ring and sure enough Alan had given his girlfriend this ring around the time that Sarah Teresita was killed when Alan was confronted with this information he actually ended up spilling and made a full confession so Alan Shulry did in fact go over to Teresita's that night and attempted to fix her television set he did not have the correct tools with him to fix it so he did leave However, on the way back, he formulated a plan to return and murder and rob Teresita. Alan turns around and knocks on the door of Teresita's apartment with tools in hand. Teresita answers the door and lets Alan back into her apartment. When Teresita turned the locked door, Alan attacked her, wrapping his arms around her neck until she stopped struggling. He then drug her into the living room and partly undressed her to throw off the police into thinking that the motive for killing was rape. However, Teresita was actually never raped as we know from her autopsy later. Next, Alan got the mattress from the bedroom and covered up the body of Teresita and set it on fire. Alan left the apartment before, but not before stealing jewelry from Teresita and later obviously gifting it to his girlfriend. Alan went on to plead not guilty to the charge of murder. There was a hung jury in Alan's case, and the judge declared a mistrial. He confessed to everything, pled not guilty, and there was a hung jury? Okay. How does that, um, how does that even work? I don't know. How was there a hung jury? I have no idea. I have no idea. They must have it, thrown out his confession. Yeah. I have, yeah. I have no idea. I wish I would have known more about it. I got most of this like from the Dateline episode, which didn't go into the trial at all, but I was also like, what? Shulry ended up. Uh, reversing his plea and admitting guilt in the end and he was sentenced to 14 years in prison the detective that worked on this case and who took the statements from the woman and the man that worked at the hospital which remain anonymous would go on to say that he was unsure what to believe if Teresita had solved her own murder from the grave or if it was a coincidence or if the women or if the woman that worked with Teresita obtained the information about Alan some other way but without this information there would still likely be an unsolved case the detectives said it was one of those things that you don't and will never know if it is true or not. And that is the case of Teresita Bassa. 14 years? That's some bullshit. Okay, also, I have a question. So when the firefighters came into the apartment originally, there was just a burning mattress on the floor of like the living room area and she was underneath the mattress? Yeah. God, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess she was partially undressed, which made them think at first that she had been assaulted. I guess that he thought that that would be, a, like, confuse the police into thinking that she was, that rape was the motive, but it was actually just, he wanted to rob her. I don't know why in his mind that would, like, 
Yeah, clearly that's the better option. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You're just, you're making it worse for yourself, dude. I'm starting to think though, maybe the coworker is a psychic or a medium, a Long Island medium. A Long Island, yeah, maybe. I mean, it's weird because, I mean, they, they were doctors and I don't know how they felt about like paranormal stuff, but there's really nothing to show that like this wasn't an isolated incident for the woman, for the wife, you know? And I I was very skeptical up until they said, oh, he stole it and gave it to his girlfriend, you know? Because like, how, I mean, there might be some connection of how she would know that kind of stuff, but it's pretty, pretty far, you know, pretty not very close relationship to know that, so. No, like she might've known he was going over to help with the TV, mm-hmm. but to know all that other information, Unless he told her, but I don't think they knew each other. But like, remember, she even said, like, ask about the jewelry or something like that. You know, like that's. And I, and the husband, the wife normal. was never going to come forward, but the husband made her. He was like, we have to tell the police this, you know, you're having these dreams, whatever. But I mean, I don't, the way that I read it in the research was that she was not planning on ever like telling the police that and was just kind of telling her husband about even when you so like I just briefly first of all completely butchered her name um when trying to spell it but now I understand it um Teresita Bassa when you just google her name it everything that pops up is like she solved her own murder by going through her friend like in the spirit and stuff and I mean if you look look at just different articles and stuff like that all it says is the friend the wife didn't want to come forward because she thought she would look foolish and you got to think about it too. It's like the 1970s. I don't know. We weren't, none of us were alive at that point, but I can only assume it was less, less awareness of, of stuff like that happening than it is these days. So yeah, I, that's just so interesting. A good life lesson. If you're ever murdered, try and speak to your friends from the afterlife. And if you're the friend of someone murdered, you should listen <laughs> and tell the, po- and tell the police I'm and tell the police. If I'm murdered, I'm look out for me because I'm definitely gonna come haunt you, bitches. <laughs> if if anybody is ever murdered that I know of, I will be looking for signs. You know, like okay. I'll be like, they know to come to me. Like, uh, you know, there's a butterfly on my window. That must mean something. I'll so. leave a notepad and pen out for you. <laughs> I'll go on the freaking Ouija boards. You know, like I will yeah. write to me. Whatever you got to do. Here's a little fun fact too: is that in case any of us ever really want to read it, the couple ended up writing their own book about this. And it's called A Voice from the Grave. And it was written in the 1980s. And they said that they believed that their mission of life was now accomplished. And that makes me also think like when people say, like, my mission is to do this, or my mission is accomplished, accomplished, I always think I, I can relate that to religion a little bit when people say like my mission is this or something like that so I'm also curious to see if they were of a certain religion because like a lot of religions don't believe in spirituality or spirituality when it comes to like hearing voices and ghosts and stuff like that like that's totally taboo so if they were religious That'd be interesting. That was the case of Teresita Bossa. And with that, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. Be sure to subscribe and leave a, and leave a review wherever you're listening to this. If you want even more information about the cases we talk about, be sure to check out our website, overmydeadpod.com. And if you'd like to stay tuned, we are going to go into our segment of overtime, where we're going to tell you about just some random cases that we are watching right now. So Kate, do you want to kick us off? 
Sure. So I, this week have a few overtime stories that I'm going to get into, but they're quite short. So I won't take too much of your time. The first one actually has nothing to do with murder. Um, more so it has to do with crime, but I just found this was a little interesting. It hits home just a little bit for me and Kylie, just a little bit, but always an interesting story when it's coming out of Miami. So the U S coast guard on, let's see, I think it was June 18th. So that was yesterday. The U S coast guard offloaded cocaine in Miami this past weekend. That was worth an estimated one, $186 million. It was seized in international waters between the Caribbean sea and the Atlantic ocean. And the coast guard said in a news release that more than 14,000 pounds of cocaine was intercepted in nine different cases this past weekend between 12 different suspected drug smugglers. I say this hits home a little bit. This hits home a little bit for me because my husband's father, my father-in-law worked for a while for the coast guard and afterwards also was part of different chapters that seized cocaine and drugs and drug smugglers off of the coast of Florida. So anytime I hear about cases about this, I think it's super interested, interesting. And the fact that $186 million worth of cocaine was just seized. It's like, you don't hear about that in the news, but that's a, that's a hell of a lot of cocaine people. Okay. And that's coming into Miami and then it's getting trafficked all over the U.S. So just think about it for a little bit. Also super interesting that inflation has also hit the cocaine industry. Has it? Inflation in the cocaine industry. But yet here we are with 14,000 pounds of cocaine. But that's probably why is because the Coast Guard's taking all of it, Kylie. Yeah, that might jack up the price a little bit. The next one, I'm going to read a little bit from a CBS News article. They have a crime section located on their website that is actually great for finding out information on updates and crime-related news. But it took place back in the fall of last year, but there's some updates to it. So a woman named Taylor Parker was finally sentenced to death for killing her pregnant friend and stealing her unborn baby. So I'm just going to read a little bit for you guys. A Texas jury finally sentenced a woman to death on Wednesday after she killed a pregnant woman she knew to take her unborn daughter. Jurors returned with the sentence for Taylor Parker, 29. After deliberating for a little over an hour, the Bowie County jury convicted Parker of capital murder in the 2020 slaying of 21-year-old Reagan Simmons Hancock whose baby was cut from her womb and did not survive. So the mother nor the child survived. It goes on to say that they're taking her to death row over this case, which is a really big deal. It's a little crazy, but you can go into the story on your own. Again, the woman's name is Taylor Parker and poor Reagan. She was 20. She had just turned 21 years old. This was her first child, a little daughter, and her friend knocked her unconscious um, surprising her. And then while she was unconscious, cut her womb open and took the baby which is just mind blowing and horrific. The fact that like someone thinks they can get away with that. uh, It's just disgusting on a whole new level. So that's a new update from that one. I remember watching like a two hour long deep dive YouTube video on Taylor Parker. I'll, I'll post it on her Instagram because it's very interesting. Not only, I mean, obviously she's batshit crazy, but like she's a pathological, like liar manipulator. Mm -hmm. She would sell cows that she didn't own a whole bunch of other stuff cows c-o-w-s cows yes on facebook um lied about you know being pregnant several times just you gotta watch the youtube video this lady's nuts because i think that's what it i think that's what it was too is that she was pretending she was pregnant 
this whole mm-hmm. time. And so then she ended up killing the, her friend to have that baby and pretend it was hers. Yep. This next one's really short. Um, it actually doesn't have anything to do with murder of a human, but unfortunately is the murder of a little puppy. Um, oh, just stop. And oh, so yeah. I'm just gonna, it's so sad, <laughs> no. but the, it just you happened and it popped up on my day. news. We can do murders of humans all day, but we draw the line at dogs. We draw the line at dogs. <laughs> this one's actually really sad. So it happened yesterday and it popped up on my news timeline. And I was like, oh my God, this makes, it makes me want to cry. You know, I won't cry about humans, but I'll cry about dogs. It happened in New York City's uh, Central Park. This man had a German Shepherd pit mix with him and he was walking in Central Park. The German Shepherd pit mix's name was Eli, RIP Eli. And apparently, there were some off-leash dogs in the park, which is not allowed. We do not condone dogs being off-leash unless they're on a property that is allowed to be off-leash and they have recall and good manners, people. The owner of Eli was like yelling at the owner of the off-leash three dogs to like put his dogs back on the leash, like not trying to make a big hassle out of it. And I'm not even kidding you. The owner of the off-leash dogs sicked the dogs on Eli And then the owner of the three dogs went over to Eli and started stabbing him. It is mind blowing. So this dog who was leashed, he ended up passing, the dog ended up passing away. And before police arrived, the owner and the three off leash dogs fled and they have no information on where he is, who he was. There's no cameras that catch him. So at the moment he is not in custody, but there are just news reports out there saying like, if anybody saw the situation, please, you know, call the police, like let them know. Okay. You're done with overtimes. So that's enough. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> that is absolutely the worst story I've heard on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, in New York city, there's so many cameras, so many people in central park. I'm really surprised they haven't identified a man with three dogs yet that was that were awfully running if anyone in new york city knows a crazy man with three dogs if anybody was in central park on sunday june 18th in the afternoon and saw this happen or saw a man running with three off-leash dogs as fast as he possibly could and looked a little sketchy, please call the police. So I'm going to wrap you off with a good one. Another good, another good one. This one has to do with human murder. And I shouldn't have said good one because it's actually really sad. This happened on June 16th, which was last Friday. Ohio man who was 32 years old. His name is Chad Doerman. Doman, and he shot his wife in his home and then tried to execute his four children. They were ages three, four, five, and seven. And he shot his wife. She was able to call police, told the police on the phone that her husband was going to attempt to kill his children. He then gathered all the children in the living room, had them line up in a row. The boys stayed there. They were the youngest ones. The girl tried to escape. She was the oldest one at seven years old. Well, a man found the daughter on the street outside in the neighborhood, called 911 again. They were able to get police there as soon as possible. But at that point, the husband had shot all of the kids in execution style. And so the wife, from what we know, is still alive. She is in the hospital and is critically injured. So that's something we'll have to keep up with because we don't have, you know, a cause or a need to know why that happened. I actually have a good one. It does involve murder, but we're going to end on a good note because three murders solved by Cheetos. 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 In 2006, a husband in Salt Lake City came home to find a six-month pregnant wife, Sonia Meja. 
deceased with the ligature around her neck. Several things were stolen from the apartment, but the husband noticed that there were Cheetos spilled all over the apartment and there was an empty Coke bottle. And he just kept talking or telling police, my wife does not eat Cheetos. She's never eaten Cheetos. We've never bought Cheetos. Police finally, you know, pulled a fingerprint off the Cheetos bag, but there was no match. Then two years later, police found Dominia Castillo deceased with a ligature around her neck. And police found a fingerprint on her emptied wallet in her apartment that matched the one found on the Cheetos bag. But they still didn't have someone, you know, to tie to the fingerprint until 2016. So it's almost 10 years later. It came back to Juan Murillo, who had been deported to Mexico in 2008. And this entire time, they've been trying to, you know, get him back to America to face charges. And last week, he just pled guilty to three counts of aggravated murder. Dang, the freaking wow. Cheeto dust got him. I don't know why this man was eating snacks while committing murder, but I'm glad he did. And that's the that's the quality choice of food. I do love Cheetos. Okay, so I guess you guys will remember last year, Brian Laundrie killed Gabby Petito. If you don't know about this case, you'll live under a rock, but it. <laughs> go maybe go look it up because there's a lot to dissect but we've I've talked about it in the overtime a few times so I'm going to provide a little update that was pretty recent the mother of Brian Laundry wrote a note to her son that has been found or I'm not sure if it was just found or if the police have just decided to just now release it but it was a note that she wrote him and the note's very strange to say the least but the premise behind this is that the parents knew you know, that Brian had killed his girlfriend. And I guess that's kind of an ongoing lawsuit right now as if the parents actually knew this letter is pretty, pretty damning evidence. I'll just kind of, I'll go ahead and just read the letter just because it's, it says, I just want you to remember, I will always love you. And I know you will always love me. You are my boy. Nothing can make me stop loving you. Nothing will or could ever divide us no matter what we do or where we go or what we say. We will always love each other. If you're in jail, I will bake a cake with a file in it. If you need to dispose of a body, I will bring a shovel. I will show up and bring a shovel and garbage bags. If you fly to the moon, I will be watching the skies for your reentry. If you say you hate my guts, I will get new guts. Remember that love is a verb, not a noun. This is not a thing. It's not words. It's actions. Watch people's actions to know if they love you, not their words. Therefore, I am certain that neither death nor life nor angels nor the ruling spirits, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers from above, nor powers from below. Nothing in the entire created world can separate our love. Neither hostile powers, nor messages of heaven, nor monarchs on earth. Nothing has the power to separate us. And then it ends with Romans 8.38. She's an evil poet. Yeah, (laughs) it's a little, it's a bit odd and creepy. Even if he hadn't murdered her or anyone, I would still think that is a weird letter. Uh, very, very odd. And and let me say that the letter was in an envelope that said Brian C- Christopher Laundry burn after reading, like in parentheses. So it gives me major like mommy son issues. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. Same. like big Same. it like just the things that like she's like if you hated my guts. I'd get new guts. And That's the worst part. That's the worst There's just line, a few you know. things in there that I'm like, ew, I don't, this is a weird relationship we've got going on. Very weird that they found a backpack or 
like something of Brian's where he had letters and things written and he actually had written a letter to Gabby as well. Evidence just keeps popping up that the parents did know about the murder or knew it was could potentially be happening at some point. It's a really sad case, but um, especially when it comes to women being in abusive relationships, whether it's physical or emotional, this case, definitely Google it, do your research. That was our episode of Over My Dead Pod. I think next week is Kate. Okay. No. Yes, ma'am. Yes. All right. So join us next week. Bye-bye. Bye.